0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle Chapter seven, Part two This was indeed the Egypt of the Confederacy, the rich granary whence potatoes and corn and cotton poured out to the famished and ragged Confederate troops as they battled for a cause lost long before eighteen sixty one. Sheltered and secure, it became the place of refuge for families, wealth, and slaves. Yet even then the hard, ruthless rape of the land began to tell. The red clay subsoil already had begun to peer above the loam. The harder the slaves were driven, the more careless and fatal was their farming. Then came the revolution of war and emancipation, the bewilderment of reconstruction. And now, what is the Egypt of the Confederacy, and what meaning has it for the nation's weal or woe? It is a land of rapid contrast and of curiously mingled hope and pain. Here sits a pretty blue-eyed quadroon hiding her bare feet. She was married only last week, and yonder in the field is her dark, young husband, hoeing to support her at thirty cents a day without board. Across the way is Gatesby, brown and tall, lord of two thousand acres, shrewdly won and held. There is a store conducted by his black son, a blacksmith, and a ginnery. Five miles below here is a town owned and controlled by one white New Englander. He owns almost a Rhode Island county, with thousands of acres and hundreds of black laborers. Their cabins look better than most, and the farm, with machinery and fertilizers, is much more businesslike than any in the county, although the manager drives hard bargains in wages. When now we turn and look five miles above, there on the edge of town are five... Houses of prostitutes, two of blacks and three of whites. And in one of the houses of the whites, a worthless black boy was harbored too openly two years ago. So he was hanged for rape. And here too is the high whitewashed fence of the stockade, as the county prison is called. The white folks say it is ever full of black criminals. The black folks say that only colored boys are sent to jail. And they not because they are guilty, but because the State needs criminals to eke out its income by their forced labor. Immigrants are heirs of the slave baron in Doherty, and as we ride westward, by wide-stretching cornfields and stubby orchards of peach and pear, we see on all sides, within the circle of dark forest, a land of Canaan. Here and there are tales of projects for money-getting, born in the swift days of reconstruction, Improvement companies, wine companies, mills and factories Most failed, and foreigners fell heir It is a beautiful land, this Doherty, west of the Flint The forests are wonderful The solemn pines have disappeared And this is the oaky woods With its wealth of hickories, beeches, oaks and palmettos But a pall of debt hangs over the beautiful land The merchants are in debt to the wholesalers THE PLANTERS ARE IN DEBT TO THE MERCHANTS, THE TENANTS, OH, THE PLANTERS, AND LABORERS BOW AND BEND BENEATH THE BURDEN OF IT ALL. HERE AND THERE A MAN HAS RAISED HIS HEAD ABOVE THESE MURKY WATERS. WE PASSED ONE FENCED STOCK-FARM WITH GRASS AND GRAZING CATTLE THAT LOOKED VERY HOMELIKE AFTER ENDLESS CORN AND COTTON. HERE AND THERE ARE BLACK FREEHOLDERS. THERE IS THE GAUNT, DULL BLACK JACKSON WITH HIS HUNDRED ACRES, I says look up. If you don't look up, you can't get up, remarks Jackson philosophically, and he's gotten up. Dark Carter's neat barns would do credit to New England. His master helped him to get a start, but when the black man died last fall, the master's sons immediately laid claim to the estate. And them white folks will get it too, says my yellow gossip. I turn from these well-tended acres with a comfortable feeling that the negro is rising. Even then, however, the fields as we proceed begin to redden and the trees disappear. Rows of old cabins appear filled with renters and laborers, cheerless, bare and dirty for the most part, although here and there the very age and decay makes the scene picturesque. A young black fellow greets us. He is twenty-two and just married. Until last year he had good luck renting Then cotton fell, and the sheriff seized and sold all he had So he moved here, where the rent is higher, the land poorer, and the owner inflexible He rents a forty-dollar mule for twenty dollars a year Poor lad, a slave at twenty-two This plantation, owned now by a foreigner, was a part of the famous Bolton estate After the war it was for many years worked by gangs of negro convicts and black convicts then were even more plentiful than now. It was a way of making negroes work, and the question of guilt was a minor one. Hard tales of cruelty and mistreatment of the chained freemen are told, but the county authorities were deaf until the free labor market was nearly ruined by wholesale migration. Then they took the convicts from the plantations, but not until one of the fairest regions of the Oaky Woods, had been ruined and ravished into a red waste, out of which only a Yankee or an immigrant could squeeze more blood from debt-cursed tenants. No wonder that Luke Black, slow, dull, and discouraged, shuffles to our carriage and talks hopelessly. Why should he strive? Every year finds him deeper in debt. How strange that Georgia, the world-heralded refuge of poor debtors, should bind her own to sloth and misfortune as ruthlessly as ever England did. The poor land groans with its birth pains, and brings forth scarcely a hundred pounds of cotton to the acre, where fifty years ago it yielded eight times as much. Of his meager yield, the tenant pays from a quarter to a third in rent, and most of the rest in interest on food and supplies bought on credit. Twenty years yonder sunken-cheeked old black man has labored under that system and now turned day-laborer is supporting his wife and boarding himself on his wages of a dollar and a half a week. Received only part of the year. The Bolton convict farm formerly included the neighboring plantation. Here it was that the convicts were lodged in the great log prison still standing. A dismal place it still remains, with rows of ugly huts, Filled with surly, ignorant tenants What rent do you pay here? I inquired I don't know What is it, Sam? All we make, answered Sam It is a depressing place Bare, unshaded With no charm of past association Only a memory of forced human toil Now, then, and before the war They are not happy, these black men whom we meet throughout this region. There is little of the joyous abandon and playfulness which we are wont to associate with the plantation negro. At best, the natural good nature is edged with complaint, or has changed into sullenness and gloom, and now and then it blazes forth in veiled but hot anger. I remember one big red-eyed black whom we met by the roadside. Forty-five years... He had labored on this farm, beginning with nothing, and still having nothing. To be sure, he had given four children a common school training, and perhaps if the new fence law had not allowed unfenced crops in West Dougherty, he might have raised a little stock and kept ahead. As it is, he is hopelessly in debt, disappointed, and embittered. He stopped us to inquire after the black boy in Albany, whom it was said a policeman had shot and killed for loud talking on the sidewalk. And then he said slowly, Let a white man touch me and he dies. I don't boast this. I don't say it around loud or before the children, but I mean it. I seen em whip my father and my old mother in them cotton rows till the blood ran by, and we passed on. Now Sears, whom we met lolling under the chubby oak trees, was of quite different fibre. Happy? Well, yes, he laughed and flipped pebbles and thought the world was as it was. He had worked here twelve years, and has nothing but a mortgaged mule. Children, yes, seven, but they hadn't been to school this year, couldn't afford books and clothes, and couldn't spare their work. There go part of them to the fields now three big boys astride mules, and a strapping girl with bare brown legs. Careless ignorance and laziness here, fierce hate and vindictiveness there, these are the extremes of the negro problem which we met that day, and we scarce knew which we preferred. Here and there we meet distinct characters quite out of the ordinary. One came out of a piece of newly cleared ground, making a wide detour to avoid the snakes, He was an old, hollow-cheeked man, with a drawn and characterful brown face. He had a sort of self-contained quaintness and rough humor impossible to describe, a certain cynical earnestness that puzzled one. These niggers were jealous of me over on the other place, he said, and so me and the old woman begged this piece of woods, and I cleared it up myself. Made nothing for two years, but I reckon I got a crop now. The cotton looked tall and rich, and we praised it. He curtsied low, and then bowed almost to the ground, with an imperturbable gravity that seemed almost suspicious. Then he continued, My mule died last week, a calamity in this land, equal to a devastating fire in town. But a white man loaned me another. Then he added, eyeing us, Oh, I get along with white folks. We turned the conversation. Bears? Deer? he answered. Well, I should say there were, and he let fly a string of brave oaths as he told hunting tales of the swamp. We left him standing in the middle of the road, looking after us, and yet apparently not noticing us. The whistle-place, which includes his bit of land, was bought soon after the war by an English syndicate, the Dixie Cotton and Corn Company. A marvelous deal of style their factor put on, with his servants and and coach-and-six, so much so that the concern soon landed in inextricable bankruptcy. Nobody lives in the old house now, but a man comes each winter out of the north and collects his high rents. I know not which are the more touching, such old empty houses or the homes of the master's sons. Sad and bitter tales lie hidden back of those white doors, tales of poverty of struggle of disappointment a revolution such as that of 63 is a terrible thing they that rose rich in the morning often slept in pauper's beds beggars and vulgar speculators rose to rule over them and their children went astray see yonder sad colored house with its cabins and fences and glad crops it is not glad within Last month the prodigal son of the struggling father wrote home from the city for money. Money? Where was it to come from? And so the son rose in the night and killed his baby and killed his wife and shot himself dead. And the world passed on. I remember wheeling around a bend in the road Beside a graceful bit of forest and a singing brook, a long low house faced us, with porch and flying pillars, great oaken door, and a broad lawn shining in the evening sun. But the window panes were gone, the pillars were worm-eaten, and the moss-grown roof was falling in. Half curiously I peered through the unhinged door and saw where, on the wall across the hall, was once written in gay letters a faded WELCOME. Quite a contrast to the southwestern part of Dougherty County is the northwest. Soberly timbered in oak and pine, it has none of that half-tropical luxuriance of the southwest. Then too there are fewer signs of a romantic past, and more of systematic modern land-grabbing and money-getting. White people are more in evidence here, and farmer and hired labor replace to some extent the absentee landlord and rack-rented tenant. The crops have neither the luxuriance of the richer land, nor the signs of neglect so often seen. And there were fences and meadows here and there. Most of this land was poor, and beneath the notice of the slave baron before the war. Since then his poor relations and foreign immigrants have seized it. The returns of the farmer are too small to allow much for wages, and yet he will not sell off small farms. There is the negro, Sanford. He has worked fourteen years as overseer on the Ladson place, and paid out enough for fertilizers to have bought a farm, but the owner will not sell off a few acres. Two children, a boy and a girl, are hoeing sturdily in the fields on the farm where Corliss works. He is smooth-faced and brown, and is fencing up his pigs. He used to run a successful cotton gin, but the Cotton Seed Oil Trust has forced the price of ginning so low that he says it hardly pays him. He points out a stately old house over the way, as the home of Pa Willis. We eagerly ride over, for Pa Willis was the tall and powerful black Moses who led the negroes for a generation and led them well. He was a Baptist preacher, and when he died two thousand black people followed him to the grave and now they preach his funeral sermon each year. His wife lives here, a weazened, sharp-featured little woman, who curtsied quaintly as we greeted her. Further on lives Jack Delson, the most prosperous negro farmer in the county. It is a joy to meet him, a great, broad-shouldered, handsome black man, intelligent and jovial. Six hundred and fifty acres he owns, and has eleven black tenants. A neat and tidy home nestled in a flower garden, and a little store stands beside it. We pass the Munson place, where a plucky white widow is renting and struggling, and the eleven hundred acres of the Senate plantation with its Negro overseer. Then the character of the farms begins to change, nearly all the lands belonging to Russian Jews. The overseers are white, and the cabins are bare board houses scattered here and there. The rents are high, and day-laborers and contract hands abound. It is a keen, hard struggle for living here, and few have time to talk. Tired with the long ride, we gladly drive into Gillensville. It is a silent cluster of farmhouses standing on the crossroads, with one of its stores closed and the other kept by a negro preacher. They tell great tales of busy times at Gillensville before all the railroads came to Albany, Now it is chiefly a memory. Riding down the street, we stop at the preacher's and seat ourselves before the door. It was one of those scenes one cannot soon forget, a wide, low little house whose motherly roof reached over and sheltered a snug little porch. There we sat, after the long hot drive, drinking cool water, the talkative little storekeeper who is my daily companion the silent old black woman patching pantaloons and saying never a word the ragged picture of helpless misfortune who called in just to see the preacher and finally the neat matronly preacher's wife plump yellow and intelligent own land said the wife well only this house then she added quietly we did buy seven hundred acres across up yonder and paid for it but they cheated us out of it Sells was the owner Sales, echoed the ragged Misfortune, who was leaning against the balustrade and listening. "'He's a regular cheat. I worked for him thirty-seven days this spring, and he paid me in cardboard checks which were to be cashed at the end of the month, but he never cashed them. Kept putting me off. Then the sheriff came and took my mule, and my corn, and furniture—' "'Furniture? But furniture is exempt from seizure by law.' "'Well, he took it just the same.' said the hard-faced man. End of chapter 7